so we have more pressure on us to to do the things that are going to enhance our earning power and, and appearance is one of those. So I think women really suffer tremendous pressure around appearance and hair is one more way to do that. Does talking about your money make you cringe? Are you tired of fighting about finances? Do you want to stop sabotaging your financial happiness? Then you are in the right place. Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series aimed at helping all of us talk more openly about money. Your host, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, is a wealth psychology expert who is doing what she does best, speaking about taboo topics. International speaker, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection, Kathleen understands money and our relationship with it. Over the past decade, she has empowered thousands of people to break money silence at home and at work. Now, here is Kathleen. Today, I have a very special guest and a very special topic on the Breaking Money Silence podcast. I'm excited to introduce my listeners to Dr. Margot Main. She is someone that I have known for a very long time. She's a clinical psychologist who has specialized in eating disorders and related issues for over 35 years. Uh, she's the founder and former advisor of the National Eating Disorder Association and founder and fellow of the Academy for Eating Disorders. She has many, many books, I believe eight in total. And her most recent book, Hair Tells a Story, Hers, Yours, and Ours, was recently published. We were able to connect. Many of you know that uh, in a previous life, I often joke that I'm a recovered therapist. <laughs> Margot was one of my mentors in the eating disorder profession and certainly uh, with my first book that I co-wrote as well. So it's really exciting for me to be able to introduce you to the listeners. Her book, just in general, explores women's relationship with their hair, a critical feminist issue, and neglected aspect of body image. Today, we're not only going to be talking about all the different stories that our hair tells, we're also going to be talking about how finances may come into play in terms of uh, women's hair and how you can take control of both your money story and the story of your hair. Welcome, Margot, to the podcast. Thanks. I enjoy talking to you and I'm going to have fun today. Yes, we're going to have fun. So just to give the listeners a little backstory, when uh, Margot Main and I first met, Margot was the keynote speaker, the one that was, you know, obviously she has many, many awards and accolades and does wonderful work with her clients. And I was writing my first book and I said, you know what? I always say you never know till you ask. So I reached out and I asked Margot if she would uh, review it and potentially write a testimonial. And that was a beginning of a very nice relationship where she was very supportive of my work uh, and cheered me on uh, while I was in the eating disorder profession. And now, since I've been out of it for many, many years in terms of the work that I'm doing now. So it's really an honor to have you here today. You've come full circle. Yes, I've come full circle. So today we're talking about your latest book, which is about hair, which I just absolutely love. I've been reading it. I think it's fascinating. But I really want to know how an esteemed clinician like yourself in body image <laughs> and eating disorders goes from, I'm writing all these books about feminist theory and women's bodies to, hey, I'm going to write about hair. <laughs> Well, you are correct in um, in your question. Almost everyone that I know professionally who 
heard me say I was writing a book about hair for my latest project, everybody did the exact same thing. They look at me and they say, hair? You're writing about hair? And I say, yes, I, I'm writing about what hair means to women in terms of their self-image and body image. And before you know it, within 10 seconds, they're telling me a hair story. But everyone <laughs> has that same, like, what? Because my other books have been quite heavy. Um, you know, I treat people with eating disorders, so they've been about um, things that contribute to eating disorders that are very, very serious and, and approaches, feminist approaches, uh, the gap between research and practice, all kinds of things. But this book was in many ways easier to write because I didn't have to do as much clinical research. And it's not an academic book, but it's not an academic book. And yet it has 268 references. And I have only myself to blame for that because hair is actually, there's a lot of documentation of the different things about hair. So uh, I wanted to prove how important hair is to us. And there's lots of research. So so that's how let me, I let me it. jump in really quick, because yeah. that's the thing that surprised me, Margot. Yeah. Not that you would not write a book that was well researched, because obviously yeah. uh, that is what you're known for. But the way in which this story is both this book is very consumer friendly, but there is a lot of history and research. I had no idea that hair had such meaning in so many cultures in our history and going yeah. forward. I mean, I just thought I went to the hairdresser, you know, every six weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and yet, in fact, in every culture, hair has had meaning. Hair has been an important part of a woman's um, identity there, sometimes of men's identity in those cultures. Jung was the first person to write about hair in terms of what it meant symbolically to people. And um, in every culture, it has a lot of symbolism, a lot of spiritual symbolism, a lot of power. So the book talks a lot about that. And I think it surprises people. And there's other things besides that that make hair very special. There is the spiritual component of it and all of that. But its physical properties also make it really unique. Hair grows throughout our whole lifespan. So it's kind of seen as a symbol of regeneration and renewal. It feels no pain when we cut it and it continues to grow like it survives even though we just killed it. And in contrast to the rest of the body, hair continues to grow throughout our lives. It decomposes very slowly. And if it's sealed in a tomb or in a plastic bag, it can last for thousands of years, uh, much longer than any other human remain. It also can exist independent of our bodies. It can be cut and made into a wig or into a hairpiece. So it's it's pretty unusual. It's a, a historical and living record, and uh, they're actually using it for DNA samples in forensic work. In fact, it's more reliable than fingerprints in forensic work. <laughs> and police will tell you that hair is easily available at crime scenes because both the perpetrator and the victim will shed it. So it's, these are things that, you know, we don't think about in regard to hair, but it makes it very, very unique. Hair is also a way we remember people. You know, you will see sometimes a reference to a locket of hair. Sometimes mothers keep the hair of their, when their young child has a haircut for the first time. It has tremendous symbolism. So it is a treasure. Uh, and we need to understand more about our individual hair history and what our families conveyed to us about hair and about our hair. Well, when you read this book, what ends up happening is you start going back and not only do you learn about the history and the culture 
and some of the symbolism around hair, you also start to do this self-examination of what, you know, what the messages were about your hair growing up. Before we get into kind of the individual impressions, I was surprised to read how much in history that women have been oppressed through their hair. And maybe other people knew this. History is not my strongest subject. Mm -hmm. But can you give us an example of something concrete of where women historically have been oppressed related to their hair, or maybe even how that's happening today? Well, it is continuing to happen. It always has happened. Think of uh, pictures of the Holocaust. Women who were being brought to, to be gassed often had their head shaved. In the olden days, not so much now, although I'm sure it probably does happen some places, psychiatric patients, women's heads were shaved. So it's a way to kind of disempower and depersonalize a person at critical times. So we've seen that throughout history. But even today, there are cultures that don't allow women to freely express themselves through their hair. You know, as a Caucasian American woman, I've had tremendous freedom with my hair. But for women in other cultures, I'm thinking of um, Masi Alinejad. She is a journalist and uh, activist from Iran. And uh, she was the first one I know who came forward to talk about the meaning of not being able to wear your hair uncovered. She, in 2014, she posted a photo of herself on Facebook. Now, this is an activist and journalist who grew up in, in Iran. And she was in London and she was running down a street without any hair covering on and her hair was just blowing in the wind. And it was such a free feeling that she posted that picture on Facebook. And before you know it, she had started a movement that then took took off and became viral. And millions of people responded to her within days as a sign of you know, women needing to be able to express themselves. And she has this um, saying, her body had been hijacked and replaced with a headscarf. And if you can't decide what you can do with your hair, you can't decide anything about your life. So that was one person who opened up my eyes to all of this. But that's not over. That was 2014. In 2022, in September, last September, not quite a year ago, A woman in Iran also, Masa Amini, 22 years old, came out of the the train or subway entrance and she came out and some hair fell out from under her hair covering. She was arrested by the morality police that they have in Iran and she was taken away for this offense of having her hair show she was beaten to death within a couple of days. Oh, it's horrible. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's, this is in the past year. So for better or for worse, um, her, her, her death became a rallying cry and there really have been international movements since then. Unfortunately, a lot more people were killed at demonstrations and the numbers are, I don't have current numbers of, of that, but it could be in the hundreds, the last I knew. So hair has sparked that much controversy, that much control. And it's important to understand that this isn't just happening now in conservative cultures. When I did some of my research for the 268 (laughs) references, hair and veiling of women predated that very far back. In In the fourth century, the Catholic Church had religious decrees 
that prohibited women from cutting their hair, threatening excommunication. And then over the years in medieval Europe, uh, women um, had to cover their hair to keep their desire in check, if you will. Even in the early colonial days in the United States, women could not cut their hair. Their hair was considered to belong to their husbands. And as recently as the early 1900s, American women were expected to cover their hair with a hat, a scarf, or a veil whenever they were out of their homes, not just when they were in church. So this isn't all that long ago, even in countries like the United States, but we have become, you know, we've become so much freer and we, or, or so we think. But I, well, I think that's the key term. So we think, but I also am thinking we don't cover, like, suppose we're not required, like in my situation, I'm not required to cover my hair, but I do feel that there's social pressure for your hair to look a certain way, especially yes. professionally. Yes. Um, and there's a lot of money and I'm not even at the top of the game of what you could spend on hair. There's yeah. a lot of money that is spent going to your hairdresser and fixing your hair. Um, yeah. And I know this is an especially a topic that is painful yes. uh, for women of color. And I know you explored yes. that also in the book. Yeah, let me just talk generally about the amount of money we spend on hair because it will blow your mind. <laughs> the, it's it's hard to get you know really good data about hair hair spending because it's spent in different places. Um, it's not just all in the store. Um, some people go to hair salons. Some people do it at home. Whatever. But the total spending in the global beauty industry in 2020 was 483 billion dollars. And the highest percentage of that, nearly a quarter, was spent on hair care. So that's a lot of money. Now, how much does the average United US women, US women spend on hair care? Different estimates, but the one I find most frequently is that the average American woman will spend fifty-five thousand on her hair in her lifetime. Oh wow. I think for some it's going to be higher. Yes. Um, and do you remember Nora Ephron? She was a playwright. Yes. yes. Yep. And she wrote, uh, Sleepless, she wrote the screenplay for Sleepless in Seattle and some other things. Really brilliant feminist woman. Um, she couldn't do her own hair. So she went to the salon twice a week. And in one of her very um, poignant and funny books that she wrote, she said that she actually spends 80 hours a week at the hairdresser from her calculations. So that's like two weeks of her life every year was in the hair salon. So that's that's a big cost to a woman. Hair is big business and there's money to be made. Now I'm sitting here and I'm getting kind of jealous of my husband who's bald. <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually jealous when I have to you know, do my hair before we yeah. go out. But uh, is there the same pressure on men or the same expense? Or, or did you even look at that question? Well, I had considered writing a chapter on men, um, but I... I decided not to. I decided a chapter wouldn't be quite enough and it would slow down the process of getting my book out. But I, of course, you know, talk to a lot of men who are interested in this topic. And so many men tell me that hair is an issue for them as well. It's usually such an issue when they are bald or balding. But some men who even have, you know, pretty good hair, it's an issue for them as well. So I think that there's more to the case, just as in the field of eating disorders, we now know that there are many more men with eating disorders than we thought years ago. Now that we say 
that we asked the question, we're finding more men talking about their issues with their bodies, et cetera. And I think the same is the case with men, but they do not have the same pressure around appearance in general that we have. And as women, you know, we earn far less than men do. It's still like 80% on a dollar for, for Caucasian women, not for women of color and other minority statuses. So we have more pressure on us to to do the things that are going to enhance our earning power and, and appearance is one of those. So I think women really suffer tremendous pressure around appearance and hair is one more way to do that. Now, you brought up the issue of women of color. Yes, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts yes. on that. I, I wrote two chapters in the book about this and I, you know, you, I could write more, much more. The fact is that hair discrimination is a fact of life for people of color in our culture. If you don't straighten or otherwise manage your Afro textured hair, you can be fired. 30 of the 50 states, there is Is that no still protection. true? Yeah, I think, um, I read this week that it's, that we now have 21 states where hair discrimination is illegal, but I have not been able to find the reference for the 21st state, but- That's okay, that's still yeah. too many. Yeah. So it means that you can not be hired. You can be fired. If you're in school, you can be sent home from school. I think you remember in the last couple of years, there were a couple of male athletes, high school boys, who were not able to compete because they wouldn't cut their hair or they, they had their hair cut at the match of because if they didn't, they would not be allowed to do their championship match. So there are things that happen with men and hair as well. But the real issue is for people of color to not be able to wear their hair the way they want to. So there is an, an answer to all of this and it's called the Crown Act. The Crown Act stands for creating a respectful and open workplace for natural hair. And um, it's a partnership by a number of organizations, including Dove and the ACLU and a couple of other um, kind of civil rights oriented groups. And as I said, 20 states have passed the Crown Act uh, 30 states have not yet. The last congressional session that ended at the end of the last calendar year, it had passed in the House, but not gotten through the Senate yet. Because the Congress acts in two-year sessions, we are now in a new session. So now it has to start all over again in both the House and in the Senate. But there is active work on getting this legislation passed at the federal level so that, that no person of color or no indigenous person, no person with natural hair that's kinky or um, or not Eurocentric, centric, if you will, will have to wear their hair differently than they want to. So the other issue here is um, women of color are 30% more likely to be given formal grooming policies as conditions of employment. You know, I never had that. Um, I never, ever, ever encountered that. And 80% of Black women report changing their hairstyle in order to maintain employment. Which Hair is crazy. I mean, I as, you're, as you're sharing this information, I mean, one of the things, I just want to react to it. Yeah. One of the things is with the Crown Act, I will put that in the show notes with a link. Uh, yeah. So people who want to know more about that and can um, get, you know, yeah. active around that and feel inspired. Uh, yeah. I really think that's something that we should look yes. at. If yes. you are invested in equity and inclusion, if you're invested in women's rights and you know pay equity, that certainly that all fits with yep. um, what I think that act is trying to do. What I want to do just briefly, I'm going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit more about individually what people can do if they notice 
that their hair is an issue for them, is costing them a lot of money, is costing them a lot of stress. Um, because I think you offer not only the historical context and, and some of the other information, but certainly you offer a lot of um, interesting stories about how people have been able to move on. So I will be back in a quick second and we will continue with Dr. Marco Main. Hi, it's Kathleen Burns Kingsbury. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Breaking Money Silence podcast. I want to take a quick time out to tell you a little bit about financial therapy. Yes, financial therapy. That word keeps showing up in the media more and more, but I've been doing financial therapy for years. And in 2023, I'm going to expand this part of my business. And I wanted you, my podcast listeners, to be the first to know. If you're curious about what is financial therapy, just know that it helps individuals and couples change unhealthy money habits, attitudes that cause them stress, anxiety, and lead them to feel uncomfortable with money. If you have trouble making big decisions, if you find that you're shopping too much, carrying too much debt, worrying about money, even though you shouldn't be worrying about money because there's enough in the bank, it may be time to consider financial therapy. The benefits are numerous and individual, but former clients have told me that they have experienced in a very short period of time, a decrease in money-related anxiety and stress. They have less conflict about money in their relationships, and they engage in more productive money conversations. The advisors that refer clients to me say, finally, my clients can make the changes in their financial behaviors in order to save for their future. So if this sounds appealing to you and you want to know a little bit more, I have a special offer. I'm offering a free 30-minute consultation to anyone who's interested in learning more about financial therapy. You can email me at kbk at breakingmoneysilence.com or you can go to the show notes, click on the schedule link and set something up via my automatic calendar. If you're listening to this not on my website and you find that I don't want to do that, I would rather just reach out to you directly. Feel free to use my private email at kbk at breakingmoneysilence.com and shoot me an email letting me know you'd like to take advantage of this time-limited offer. So my hope is we'll chat about financial therapy soon. And now it's time to get back to our regular programming. So Kathleen Burns Kingsbury in the Breaking Money Silence podcast. I have a special guest today, a Dr. Margot Main. She wrote many, many books, and her eighth book is a little bit of a twist, something new for her called Hair Tells a Story, Hers, Yours, and Ours. And we were just talking about all the ways in which women and men can be oppressed or kept down or, you know, have policies that are not realistic in terms of uh, their hair Uh, and how that's an extension of appearance. What I'd like to do now is really talk a little bit uh, more about, about, you know, how it impacts us from an economical standpoint and how, you know, our connection with hairdressers. So, So let me just start with this, so just to give us a place to start. During the pandemic, I can remember what it was like 
to wait so long to go to your hairdresser. In <laughs> fact, <laughs> in fact, it was freeing for a while. And then it became, wow, I didn't know my hair was that color to <laughs> wait, maybe I'll never go back because, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. But in the end, I not only missed my hairdresser, mm -hmm. I had to change hairdressers, which then changed how much I was spending, <laughs> met my hairdresser with a mask and didn't even see her for a year, but thankfully bonded with her. And now um, I don't think I could break up with her. So <laughs> I'm just a very simple example of what some people went through during the pandemic. Why do you think it is so hard for people to forego their hairdressers? <laughs> like it seemed I missed her more than, than <laughs> I missed like some of my friends. It's crazy. <laughs> Oh, Kathleen, this is so great that you brought this up because I think that was the experience of so many women. I had my hairdresser's last legal appointment, um, and I think we actually were over the line in terms of the time. I think we were not supposed to meet that Friday morning, but we did. And I was in that same camp. You know, for those of us who have started coloring our hair as we get older, and I'm one of those people, actually, one of the inconsistent things about me is that I color my hair. My story is that I've never known what color my hair is, but when I was growing up, I started to get some gray hair when I was 15 to 16. And that kind of like made, made me think. And I had been told my whole life that I looked just like an aunt who was totally gray by the time she was 30. She also died at a young age and she was my godmother. So there were all these kind of connections with her. And um, so when these gray hairs started, I was like, hmm, gray hair by 30? I don't think so. So as I went through my 20s and into my late 20s, my hairstylist, who is the same hairstylist I go to today, started coloring it with henna. And then that didn't last very long anymore because, it, you know, because it washes out. So. so then we went to a more serious color. So I've been really having my hair colored since I was probably about 30, which is ahead of the time for, for many people. Although now everybody starts coloring their hair when they're 10 years old. <laughs> um, so uh, for me, I haven't known my hair color. I have, with my best friend from childhood, we've talked a lot about, you know, going natural, et cetera, et cetera. But neither of us did it until the pandemic. She went all the way. I did not. I Once we could see the hairstylist again, I was getting it colored, but but much more naturally, just just a little bit of color. So now I have some gray and some other colors in it, but I still don't know what color my hair is. I've never known what color my hair is my entire life. It's uh, fascinating. <laughs> um, Knowing you, that's even more fascinating. I know. Yes. I know. I'm kind of like, you got to admit, I'm kind of like a control, control junkie. Like I'm pretty much in control of my life. When I was growing up, I spent a lot of time swimming. And so I was used to it being very natural. But in other ways, I've been more in control of my life than a lot of people are. And uh, I never knew my hair color. When I was little, people used to say they loved my hair because it was so black. And it wasn't black, but people thought it was black. Then I, they loved my hair because it had so much red in it. I never saw the red in it. But it just, it was like, I felt like my hair was a chameleon. And different people saw different things. And I didn't really know what color it was, even before this all became an issue. <laughs> and I remember um, filling out my passport application and you had to check a box as to what color your hair was. And I didn't check off the box because I didn't know what color my hair was. So I handed the application in at the post office and the clerk handed it back to me and she said, you didn't check your hair color. And I said, but I don't know what color my hair is. And she looked at me and she said, brown. And it was like this 
I don't know. I felt so let down by having brown hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the reality is, I don't know what my hair color is now. And I've never really known what my hair color is. And that's so inconsistent with everything else about me. I am absolutely natural in every other way. Everything yeah. else about me is very transparent. You ask me anything, I will tell you. But I don't know my hair color. So that's like, that has some meaning in my life. And I think for all of us, um, hair takes on meaning that we don't really understand until we take some time to think about it. I recently spoke to a woman who uh, is in her late 70s. She may be about 80. And uh, she's someone I think a lot of. And I had sent her a copy of my book because I know her as a friend. And um, when we talked next, she said, um, this is the first thing she said to me, now I understand my whole life. So, because oh. she understood and she read the book about her hair. Yes. And she said, when I was really little, I had appendicitis. I was in horrible pain. My mother called the doctor and he said to come to the hospital right away. But she stopped to get her hair done on the way to the hospital. Oh, so she felt she feels like, you know, her whole life, she hasn't been that important to other people. And she never understood this connection to what happened when she had appendicitis and her mother had to get her hair done. That her mother's wow. hair won. That is that is fascinating. There's yeah. actually, and I don't remember the page. I used to know the page. Yeah. Uh, but in the first book I ever co-wrote, uh, Weight Wisdom, there is yeah. a story about someone who can't make it to a family funeral because she didn't have a chance to get her hair done. Yeah. Wow. Um, Wow. Yeah. For me personally, what yeah. I remembered in reading the book, and I, I used to tell this story, but it, I kind of forgot about it, was when I was a little girl, my family, we had a cottage in New Hampshire and it was in the summer. And my sister, who's five years older than me and adopted, she happens to have blonde, like natural blonde hair and blue eyes. And I have kind of sandy brown naturally and, you know, brown eyes. And I can remember a very well-intended but misplaced uh, moments where my mother would spray my hair with sun in and sit me oh. out in in the lawn with the idea that, now I don't think she ever said this, but I took away that I needed to somehow match my sister's hair. Yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, you can, we can unpack that on several levels, yeah. but so there's, there's so much about hair. And when I think about your story about always having your hair colored, it kind of, well, not kind of, it, it says to me like, wow, that is a lot of money. And yes, so this podcast right. on breaking money silence, one yes. of the things that I want to end with is really a discussion of if women are spending this amount of money, and I'm putting myself in yes. with everybody else, yes. on our hair, is that the best investment of our funds or would we be better off you know, using some of that money, I'm not saying go cold turkey, but using yes. some of that money to invest in our retirement. I mean, women's retirement funds are, our savings is lagging and not sufficient compared to men's. Yeah. And, you know, it's one area that I've never thought about before reading this book, but I'm like, wow, if we spent a little less yes. on our hair and nails, yeah. we could actually take care of ourselves in our elder years. Yeah, absolutely. You also could give more money to, you know, needy uh, causes in your community. It just, it, we do have to look at where we put our energy and our money. And, and this is a big statement about that. You know, I see my hairstylist once a month, and that's an expense that I just have built into my life, and I don't think twice about it. 
But some people have to think twice about it. For people who are kind of on the margin to still have to put a lot of money, you know, percentage-wise into their hair every month, it's it's quite a sacrifice. And they should be saving it for their retirement or for some other thing that might be of greater social value. <laughs> right, right. So many things. So yeah. there is so much to discuss and talk about. And I love having these conversations with you. It's really hard to cut it off. I'm going to do one thing for my listening audience. I'm going to challenge people out there listening to uh, send in or to comment wherever the podcast is posted as to what's one small thing if you skipped one haircut or one mm-hmm. highlight or somehow found ways to reduce your hair care expense, what could you invest that in instead? So I want to challenge everybody to think about that. I will think about that as well. (laughs) Um, And with that said, Margot, I would love to know, and this is a really hard question, but what's one piece of advice you'd like to leave our listeners with based on what you learned about women Mm -hmm. and hair writing this book? I'd like you to take your hair seriously and see see what it says to you about who you are. And I'd like you to make choices about your hair that are based on what you want, not what somebody else wants from you or what our culture wants from you. Very well said. So a feminist issue. Yeah, absolutely. So where can listeners find out more about the book and your other books and also about your work in general? You can go to my website, which is mwsg.org, mainandweinsteinspecialtygroup.org. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and I guess Twitter uh, and LinkedIn. And it's all as Dr. Margot Main. Uh, the book is available through, of course, Amazon uh, mm-hmm. and through your local bookstores and all kinds of other stores. And it's really very available. And I do want to mention that today is National Hairstylist Appreciation Day. No, it is not. It is. It just happens that today is the day. That's exciting. We're pre recording. <laughs> When it comes out, that may not be the case, but I love that that happened. I I had no idea. Yeah. Serendipity. I love that. So the other thing I will say about Dr. Margot Main is uh, she is going to be speaking on this topic as well as she speaks on other topics. And I really think if you are at all interested in bringing this idea to your women's group, to your professional women's ERG, definitely uh, reach out um, because she's an excellent speaker. Thank you so much for breaking money silence with me and talking about one of the things we never talked about when right. we were in the field of eating disorders together. Right. <laughs> uh, I really appreciate it, Marco. Thank you so much. It was great to be with you. Thank you for listening to Breaking Money Silence, hosted by Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Also, share this episode with your friends and family. It is a great way to get the conversation started. For more money talk tips and information or to hire Kathleen to speak at your next event, go to www.breakingmoneysilence.com.